This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. This wildlife story starts in a very unusual way. Amchitka Island, far out in the Aleutian Island chain of Alaska, was the scene on October 2nd, 1969, at 12.06 p.m. bearing daylight time, when the United States Atomic Energy Commission detonated the Project Milro nuclear explosive. A test of a nuclear bomb. During the late 60s and early 70s, three atomic weapons were tested on Amchitka Island. From the perspective of the U.S. government, this remote island that borders the Bering Sea was the perfect place to test such a weapon. Nearly 1,400 miles from Anchorage and 2,600 miles from Seattle, it is isolated from any populated areas. The closest persons live about 200 miles away. The warheads were buried nearly 6,000 feet underground. The largest of the tests was 25 megatons, which is 200 times the size of the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. The explosion, over a mile under the earth, was silent, but it caused a giant shockwave that rippled out through the ground, like when you drop a stone in water. An official in a bunker 28 miles away describes it. The blast registered a 7.0 on the Richter scale. Cliff sides collapsed into the ocean, and on the island, the detonation created a crater over a mile wide and 60 feet deep, which filled with water and became a large lake. The military labeled the tests a great success but not for the wildlife. Over 10,000 fish were killed in the island's lakes, streams, and ponds. Even offshore in the sea, hundreds of fish washed up dead. All kinds of creatures became the victims of circumstance, including 1,000 sea otters out at sea, killed by the pressure of the explosion. But thanks to a little imagination, right before the nuclear test, a last-minute program was deployed to capture and save some of the sea otters. Part of the program included trapping of sea otter for scientific study and live transplant to other areas in cooperation with the state of Alaska and Department of the Interior. Several hundred of the sea otters were quickly relocated out of harm's way to the North Pacific coast of Washington State and Oregon. Now, over 50 years later, biologists are trying to figure out what is the fallout from this storied otter translocation. Has the nuclear otter evacuation from 50 years ago been a success? And what are the ecological ripple effects? This is a story of second chances for an impossibly adorable sea creature, and how their mere presence can support countless other species, and even help save us from climate change. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild.
ferns everywhere. Every square inch of this place is lived in by something green. I'm at the end of a three-mile hike through a silent, jungle-thick, old-growth forest in a remote corner of the Washington State coast. This time, though, the forest is not my destination. I'm headed to the Pacific Ocean. Big whitecaps crashing in and sea stacks behind. Wow, Sean. Isn't this gorgeous? Oh. The energy hits me. I can taste the salt in the wind. And the scene is just... Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to paradise, right? Giant waves are crashing against big rock islands. Some of them five stories high. They're called haystacks and the beach is full of huge cedar driftwood. This is one of the areas that, where the otters have occupied the Washington coast for the longest period of time. We've entered the realm of the sea otter. I'm here with Dr. Sean Larson. She's the curator of research at the Seattle Aquarium and a big name in the world of sea otter science. She comes out here to monitor the population of otters. We climb to the top of a giant rock about the size of a house at a point on the beach called Sand Point. From up here, there's a clear 180-degree view of the coastline. Sean and her team use this few square feet as an otter observation lookout. Right away, I see something in the wash. I just saw one up there, between the two rocks. Oh, yeah. Well, you're a natural, Chris. You got this. The reason this population of sea otters is a thrill to see is because for most of the last two centuries, there weren't any sea otters on this coastline. Every single one of them had been hunted, killed for their fur. What's interesting with the sea otters is they evolved this incredibly thick fur to stay warm. Um, so it has up to a million hairs per square inch. So a square inch is you take your, um, you make an okay sign with your hand, and within that square inch, an otter has a million hairs. Wow. How does that compare to human hair, do you know? Well, it depends on the person, but I think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I does. think most people <laughs> have maybe a couple, maybe tens of thousands of hairs on their whole head. So one square inch of an otter's fur is much more than a typical human has probably on their entire body. This thick sea otter fur is just one of the many amazing adaptations to a life in the ocean. But it was also their downfall. Their plush coat became very highly valued in the 1700s, so much so it became known as soft gold. And ships from all over the world, from Russia, from Europe, um, from even South America, came to the North Pacific to get the soft gold. And um, this is what drove most of the sea otters to extinction um, throughout the North Pacific. Over a million sea otters were killed for their pelts during the fur trade over about 150 years. The last one in Washington was killed in 1910. Luckily, a few pockets of sea otters survived that were just so remote and so small that the commercial fur traders just, it wasn't worth their time. One of those surviving pockets of sea otters was up on Amchitka Island, 
a 40-mile-long chunk of land about as far out on the Aleutian Islands into the Pacific as you can get before being in Russia. Here, and around other remote Aleutian Islands, about 90,000 otters had stayed safe from the fur trade hunt. So when the plan was announced to test nuclear weapons up there, an enthusiastic biologist named Carl Kenyon had an idea. And they were going to do this, and there's all this plan, and the biologist said, wait a minute, there's sea otters there. And they said, can you just wait till we can move as many sea otters off of that island to move them in other places where we knew they used to occur, like the whole west coast of North America, right? So this like rescue mission? Thing? It was a rescue mission, Whoa. yeah. To save them from nuclear annihilation and, <laughs> and to recolonize sea otters where they used to occur along the west coast of North America. The plan worked. Nearly 700 otters were flown out before the blast went off. All of the otters living on the Washington coast now are descendants of those few that came from Amchitka these refugees had found a new home here in the North Pacific. And Sean is now carefully monitoring this recolonization effort for a whole variety of reasons. She studies their distribution, what they're eating, how they fit into the coastal ecosystem. Um, and I'm trying to understand how they directly and indirectly affect the health of the system. Um, and we're learning more and more about that every day. It starts with Sean and her team observing the feeding habits of the otters. I'm going to set up my scope too. Back on top of that large rock, Sean pulls a tripod out of her backpack and mounts a telescope to get a close-up view of the otters. They're, they're about 100 or 200 yards out in the water. The team zeroes in on two otters to watch. That's really exciting. Two sea otters already. And these guys are springing into action. One of the otters is feeding. Anyway, they're one of the only mammals that actually uses tools. I mean, I think they're, they're actually discovering more and more, but these guys, that otter just had a rock on its oh, chest, yes. and it was pounding. Otters use rocks to bang open clams or snails. They dive down and pick a rock from the seabed, tuck it into a flap of loose skin under their arm, like a pocket, and then they carry it to the surface along with a bunch of lovely shellfish food. Then they roll over onto their backs in the surf, pull out the rock. Sometimes they'll even have a favorite pet rock they keep for a while. And they use it like an anvil on their belly, grabbing lunch between their front paws and smashing it open to get to the meat. And otters need to eat a lot. They don't have a layer of blubber to keep them warm in the ocean like a seal or a sea lion does. Otters only have that famous thick hair to keep them insulated because the sea otters are floating around in 50 degree water. Their core temperature is actually 101. So they're constantly losing heat to their environment and they have to eat 25 to 30% of their body weight every day just to maintain uh, their core body temperature as well as um, their whole systems. A male otter can weigh between 70 and 100 pounds, sometimes more. That's a lot of clams. So that's why Sean comes out here to record what and how much the otters are eating. It looks like a female. Oh, baby. Sean spots another otter through her scope. 
she has a stopwatch in her hand and records how much time the otter spends up on the surface and how much time she dives down looking for food. Okay, down. So 57 seconds on the surface. I didn't get the dive time. She was eating snails, 1A, and I saw six. 1A refers to the size of the snail. Sean uses the otter's paw as a reference to figure out the size of the meal it's holding. All the information, the size and quantity of food consumed, is recorded onto a form. It looks like a female just because I see that she's got, um, oh, up. 35 dive time. I see that she has um, teats that aren't, so she's probably, and she looks pretty fat. I'm not going to say she's pregnant, but she's, you know. They've calculated estimates for how many calories an otter will burn depending on how long it's down diving for food and how many calories it will obtain from eating that food. So at the end of the day, they can figure out how successful that otter was. Is the otter on track to eat enough calories to stay alive? Collated over months and years, the data tell them a lot. This all informs um, the health of the population, how much food they're gathering from the nearshore. Um, but also it tells us, you know, how diverse and productive the nearshore is based on what they're bringing up. Okay, up. 51 seconds is dive time. Oh, she's got a little crab. Crab! So she had one crab and then... Oh, so cute. Oh my gosh. And she's down. She had three 1A snails, and that was 55 seconds surface time. Seeing what kind of food the otter brings up to the surface also tells Sean about the species diversity here in what's called the nearshore habitat, the ocean habitat along the coast, reefs, rocks, pools, and waves that sea otters call home. It also lets them monitor any changes in that food diversity over time. For example, when otters first move into an area, they tend to specialize on one or two of their favorite prey. And then once those are gone, then they diversify their diet. They'll start to eat other things. Um, and these guys have been at Sandpoint for about 40 years now, and they are starting to diversify their diet. But they're still getting enough calories, so they're not going to have to move on. But they maybe can't just eat clams and crabs all day. They're going to have to eat snails and mussels and sometimes a giant Pacific octopus and other things. So, As we leave the beach, Sean points out all the empty shells washed up on the sand. They're everywhere. And each one of these has been cracked open and eaten by an otter. That's and amazing. Look, there's and the whole beach is, the yeah. whole beach is covered. It really gives you a sense of just how much they are eating, how abundant this place is, how diverse. It all makes for a healthy nearshore environment. And the otters here seem to be getting enough food to stick around. And um, the otters in Washington are some of the healthiest sea otters in the entire world. Mm. They're some of the largest otters. They, they, they have plenty of food to survive. They've got plenty of haystack rocks to get out of the wind and the waves. Um, they're just really thriving. But while the otters here at Sandpoint on the Washington coast seem to be thriving, otters on the Oregon coast just a couple of hundred miles south didn't fare so well after being relocated from Amchitka Island. 
It's kind of a mystery, but um, they're, they're not sure if there was, you know, some certainly died. They found some that were washed ashore. By the early 80s, biologists watched as the number in Oregon just kept on decreasing until they were completely gone again. And nobody's quite sure what happened. There was talk about, you know, there wasn't adequate prey, which I, I don't believe, um, you know, wasn't the right genetic stock. I don't believe that. The consensus is that they really just were trying to get back to Alaska. Otters are incredibly social animals. Groups of them will link up and form what's known as an otter raft. They link paws with other otters so they don't float away from one another. And these rafts can sometimes get to be as big as 700 otters, all holding hands and floating together. It's one of nature's sweetest scenes. Part of the socialness is also a strong desire to be home, in or near where they were born and raised. Many biologists agree that the Oregon otters were just trying to swim back home to Alaska. Their route back home would have brought them past this spot on the Washington coast. And that by the time they got to Washington, they ran into that, the group of the Washington otters and probably didn't go further. They liked what they saw. Yeah, well, they had another. And again, these guys were all from Amchitka, right? So the Oregon translocation was from Amchitka, and so was Washington. So maybe they ran into their family members. Hey, that's my cousin, Bill. There's mom. There's Aunt Jane. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so... This is all just speculation, but there is evidence of this happening in other places. A hundred sea otters were removed from around Monterey Bay in Southern California and translocated to San Nicolas Island. The idea was to break up the group in case there was an oil spill, because that would have wiped out the entire population there. So they wanted another subpopulation just to protect it. Most of those otters, even though San Nicolas Island is, I don't know, 300, 400 kilometers from Monterey, probably farther, most of them swam home because wow. <laughs> they do, they have a very strong homing instinct. Although the otter relocation to Oregon didn't succeed, Sean is pretty excited about the Washington otters. A healthy population of them is established off the coast, and they seem to be doing well. They're finding enough food to be the largest sea otters in the world. But there's a bigger picture too. These otters could prove to be a key player as this ecosystem faces the effects of climate change. Sea otter's role in climate change is as a stabilizer so that when there is ocean warming, ocean acidification, and other pulse disturbances, the nearshore ecosystem does not change. After the break, we head to a kelp forest and take a look at what those forests and this cute, unassuming sea mammal have to do with climate change. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm excited. I've never been here. Oh, okay. Northwest Point, USA, near Bay. 
This morning, Sean has brought me to a key part of the coast for sea otters, the most northwestern point of the lower 48 states. It's called Cape Flattery. It's a dramatic landscape. We've hiked through more deep green forest, right up to the edge of some very high cliffs. Waves are battering the shoreline, shooting white water up into the sky. Wow. You know, since starting this podcast, I've realized how many times I say, wow. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> the world still has a lot of wow in it. Yeah, it does. Leaning over one of the cliffs, Sean points to another type of forest. This one, in the sea below. But see the kelp? You can even see the kelp down in here. Oh, yeah. Ooh, look at that. Oh, yeah. This kelp is an integral part of the sea otter's nearshore ecosystem. And it's also a major player when it comes to absorbing carbon from the atmosphere. Kelp are like large algae, like a giant seaweed, that live in cool, relatively shallow waters close to the shore. The stems are often over 150 feet long, and they grow in dense groupings called kelp forests. This stuff can grow two inches a day and provides shelter for countless fish, invertebrates, and sea otters. The nearshore ecosystem in Washington State is very productive, uh, very diverse, and it's, um, it's just what the sea otters need to survive and thrive. And the sea otters are what the ecosystem needs to survive and thrive. Because the relationship between sea otters and kelp is a two-way street. Each helps the other. You see, without otters, kelp forests struggle. They've been dying in the Pacific Ocean. The culprit is the sea urchin. Sea urchins are spiny, fist-sized grazers, like miniature underwater lawnmowers, and they love to eat kelp, a lot of kelp. So if there's no control on the urchins, what happens to the kelp forest ecosystem is it goes away and it turns into an urchin barren. And now there's no habitat or their food or shelter for a lot of the other invertebrates that live in the kelp forest ecosystem and there's no habitat for the fish. So basically, everything just goes away. An urchin barren. Too many urchins eating kelp means no kelp forest ecosystem. What's needed is something to control the sea urchin numbers. Enter the sea otter. Sea urchins are one of their favorite foods, and by eating them, they keep the urchin population in check, allowing the kelp to grow. And Sean has seen that here. The otters have turned lifeless urchin barrens into healthy kelp forests again. So it's safe to say that without the sea otters, the kelp forest is not healthy, or is not even there in some cases. In some cases. So sea otters are a keystone species for the nearshore environment. In other words, they're a key player in maintaining the way an ecosystem functions and its health. And that's important because these areas face warming waters and ocean acidification and disease that may come with climate change. But yet with this keystone species, the kelp forest remains, the diversity of the animals within the kelp forest remains, even though there's these disturbances that may take one or two species out, it still maintains everything else. Sean tells me only a couple of otters are needed to limit urchin numbers and reinvigorate a kelp forest ecosystem. So it's easy to imagine what an entire colony of them could do. 
Sean and her team have even started to notice that kelp forests with otters have bigger fish. They don't know exactly why yet, but there is that correlation. And it's an example of how these sea otters end up raising more questions all the time about this layered ecosystem with many moving parts. But perhaps the biggest reason kelp forests are on the radar today is because these underwater forests are very good at taking in carbon. In fact, they're among the best anti-climate warming systems on Earth. Kelp forest is shown to sequester hundreds of times more carbon than in areas without a kelp forest. As they're photosynthesizing, kelp forests take in huge amounts of carbon from the atmosphere, the very carbon the world is trying to control right now. In fact, one acre of kelp forest takes in about 20 times more than one acre of regular land forest, like the giant trees we walked through to get here. And the sea otters are at the heart of it. Just the fact that sea otters help facilitate healthy kelp forest ecosystems right there is going to slow climate change. But even if climate change does happen in these nearshore systems, with the keystone species stabilizing it, uh, the systems don't change as dramatically than if the sea otters weren't there. And the good news is that otters are continuing to expand into areas that they used to occupy. The sea otters helping the kelp come back, and the kelp helping us all reduce climate change. Here at Cape Flattery, it's a very productive marine area. The Strait of Juan de Fuca funnels in a lot of water between the US and Canada. Nutrients and lots of oxygen creating a very healthy nearshore. And Cape Flattery also marks the northern edge of the sea otters range in Washington. Um, we're not in the center anymore, we're at the edge and so because we're at the edge of the range, there are fewer otters, but because there are few otters, fewer otters, there's lots more food for them. Sean has seen them hoist up big mussels, huge red and purple urchins, and some monstrous clams. So we've seen otters out here eat the biggest clams we've ever seen, like um, almost a dinner plate size wow. clam. So huh. <laughs> there's plenty of really good, um, high-quality food for them here. So does it feel like a place where they could really take off? Yeah, yeah, over time. Cape Flattery is a bit like the next frontier as sea otters continue to come back to Washington. We walk out to the wooden overlook at the end of the point. It's like a big old ship's crow's nest looking out to sea. Sean's team has already set up the spotting scope, and it doesn't take long before Sean spots something. Oh! that there's something <gasps> is that a mom with a pup yeah. holy shit. yeah there's a mom with a pup a baby yes in this look do you see where i'm looking <gasps> oh my gosh you guys come on she's got a baby peer out into the middle of all that churning and crashing water and there, right at the base of a tall haystack rock, a female sea otter floating on her back with her baby sitting on her stomach. She's trying so hard to keep it dry and out of the water but she's right in the churning of all the waves. Right in, in the a... jacuzzi. Yep. Oh <laughs> my god. Can you able... Do you see the pup how tiny it is? I'm trying to make... Oh I see. See? Oh, she's got her arms around Yes, it. yes. Here. 
The pup looks so relaxed sitting on its mum, even as they both disappear behind a ten-foot wave and then reappear and surf over the next one. Sea otters only been seen at this spot for about the last ten years, and it's mostly been males because they're usually the ones that make the first push into a new area. Sean used to only see males when she was doing observations from this spot. And now we're seeing females with pups, mm. so we really know that this is like you know, you know the the extension of their range where they're here to stay if you have the mm-hmm. females with pups. This is a pioneering female planting a flag that this is now otter territory once again. It is exciting, even if it is a little stressful to see a way out there in such rough water. But it's kind of like, hey mama, get to some calmer water here. Yeah. Oh, he's looking around. He's like, what are you doing, mom? <laughs> so cute. Any creature that can survive, never mind thrive in this type of ecosystem, is impressive. I'm overwhelmed by the experience of witnessing the wildness of this place. I know, I've run out of adjectives. Yeah. In a place like this. Sometimes there are no words. No. It's just... Wow. And to think that this mother is here now because her great-great-great-great-grandparents seven generations ago were refugees from a nuclear threat. Because of those translocations from Amchitka Island and the foresight that it took to bring them here, there are now continuous sea otter populations from Washington northwards through the coast of British Columbia in Canada all the way up to Alaska. It's not as populous or as large as it was we think before but we actually have sea otters that can move between each one of those all because of those translocations so without that we would still have sea otters probably just in the Alaska Peninsula um, the Aleutian chain and Prince William Sound as well as that small group in California and across that whole range even though the sea otters don't know it they're out there literally maintaining the kelp ecosystem for the planet. And now, Sean is working with tribes and other biologists in Oregon to the south to attempt another relocation effort there. They're studying what went wrong there with the first relocation and looking at successes in other places to figure out how best to do it. If things go right, they hope to have otters back in Oregon in the next five to ten years. That would connect sea otters all the way from California to Alaska along an uninterrupted kelp highway. Sean truly believes that bringing back sea otters and with them their kelp forest home to all the areas where they used to live would help save us from climate change. Over her nearly 30-year sea otter career, Sean has never lost the simple delight she feels for these beautiful creatures. But it's just that now she sees them differently too as these important ecosystem allies. I guess the biggest surprise is how could something so cute where like I could literally watch sea otters forage and interact with each other and play with their babies all day long every day for the rest of my life to just know that this animal that is so enjoyable for us humans to watch that that animal can actually help us deal with climate change and help save the nearshore is just amazing to me. I'm blown away.
thank you to the Makar tribe. This entire episode was recorded on their traditional land. If you'd like to see a behind-the-scenes video of my time with Sean looking for otters, head on over to our Instagram at The Wild Pod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. I also hosted a couple of really nice short films about kelp forests recently. There are links in the show notes. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by the people who work in it. Love it. Protect it. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. One way to support this vital work is through my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. A very special thank you for the kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Alan Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Paul Lister, Barbara Stolman, Mark Wilkins and Rebecca Badger, Bob Yellalese and Annie Mize. Our production team includes Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Giannotti, Cara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Schmidt, Hans Twight, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm Chris Morgan. If you enjoy The Wild, please do tell your friends. Uh, we love our stories really to reach and inspire as many people as possible, so thanks for helping share it. Thank you for listening also, and take good care of each other. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.